All right. Um, I want to welcome everyone again. I'm Pastor Michael, and I want to express appreciation for Nate for leading the singing and for David for handling all the technical parts of this. Um, it was a really intense morning, but I can't think of two brothers I would rather be with on working together on this. And we're going to continue our worship service with the congregational prayer. So everyone, please join me. Lord, when we think about this pandemic, when we think about the scale of it and the scope of it, it is beyond all human understanding. It is beyond all comprehension. And we're thinking of all the lives, all the lives that have been upended and all the plans and dreams and hopes that have been dashed and suspended. And we're thinking of all the lives that have been lost and all the families that are grieving and we are grieving with them. And all of those who have fallen sick and even now they're struggling for their every breath. And we know that this is not just happening here in the Bay Area and in the United States, but all around the world. The whole world is groaning in this catastrophe. It is beyond human imagination. But it is not beyond your power and grace. And we know that you are the divine author writing this story right now. We're in this dark chapter, but this is not how the story will end. And we know that in this single global event, you are resolving a billion storylines. And in all of them, you are doing your wondrous works, your mighty deeds. On this Easter Sunday, we ask for your healing hand upon this land. Heal us, Lord. And we know that there is a resurrection to come. And there's a healing of all things. And everything will be made good and right. All things will be made new. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So, <clears throat> I'm going to cough because I still have the residual cough for, for my allergies. <clears throat> so, I want to tell everyone, he is risen. He is risen indeed. This is the traditional Easter greeting. And I hope that next year we will be able to say it together. And Easter is the climax celebration of the Christian faith. And it marks the, um, it marks the, 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 the Jesus' resurrection from the grave, which is the ultimate proof. It's the ultimate proof because it reverses, it overturns the verdict of the cross. Because the cross, if that were the end of the story, right? If all Jesus did was come and live and teach and then die on a Roman cross and then rot in the grave, that would mean that he is a fraud. That would mean that he is not the Messiah, that his mission was a failure, and that God's people remain in captivity under evil, under injustice. That would mean that the whole world is dead in their sins, you and I. And this is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ is not raised, then we of all people are most to be pitied. 
And so everything depends on the truth of the resurrection. The entire Christian faith, the whole Christian faith rests on this singular historical event, everything. And therefore, what you see throughout the gospel accounts are a series of stories of what are called resurrection appearances, where Jesus appears before his disciples risen, and he shows himself to his followers. And in John chapter 20, he shows himself to to Thomas, and it's a very famous story. In this story, Thomas is struggling with his doubts. He's wrestling with doubts because the other disciples tell him, we've seen the Lord Thomas. He's not dead. He's alive. And Thomas doesn't believe, right? Because it just sounds incredible. It sounds fantastic. How can this be? And so he says, I have to see, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I could put my finger into his wounds, I can never believe. And so it's this very dramatic story. And so we're going to read the text. And we're going to read John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. And um, it's going to be displayed for you on the screen. But you might want to get your Bibles out because I'm going to be referring to the text throughout the sermon. And so if you can get your Bibles, or you can just follow in the screen. I'm going to read to you John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. So let me start. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So he was not with the other disciples. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of God. So in this sermon, I'm going to focus on Thomas's doubts. And I'm going to ask, what is the role of doubts in the Christian faith? Are doubts, are they good or are they bad? And the answer is, it depends. It depends. And some of you are saying, wait a minute, I thought doubts are always bad. They are only bad. And what I want to show you today in this story is that there is such a thing as good doubt. There is such a thing as healthy doubt. There is such a thing as what I'm going to call 
believing doubt. And this story is an example of that. And therefore, Thomas here is a model for all of us. And so what can we learn from him? And so there's a lot here. Let's unpack this. And I'm entitling my sermon, Doubting the Resurrection. And so here's the outline. I have four points. Number one, I want to show you a new way to read the story. Number two, I'm going to look at the difference between believing doubt and unbelieving doubt. Number three, I'm going to, let's talk about what should we do with our doubts? What can we learn from Thomas here? And then number four, we're going to look at the ultimate proof the ultimate proof for Christianity. So let's begin. Number one, a new way to read the story. So the basic thesis of my sermon is that the traditional reading of this story is completely wrong. Completely wrong. Because the way that most of us have been taught to read the story is that what Thomas is doing here, what he's asking for, is wrong. Because he should have just believed, but he doubted. And so all throughout the history of the church, he has been called Doubting Thomas. Because he was the final holdout among the disciples. The rest of the disciples believed, but Thomas, he held on to his skepticism and his suspicions. And so he was not a very good disciple. And I want to show you that that story is completely wrong. And it is wrong on so many levels. First of all, if what Thomas asked for here is wrong, then why did Jesus give it to him? If you read throughout the Gospels, every time somebody asks Jesus for illegitimate proof, Jesus refuses. When the scribes and the Pharisees said to Jesus, show us a sign, Prove that you're the Messiah. Show us a sign. Jesus responded to them, no sign will be given to this unbelieving generation. And, if, and so if what Thomas asked for is wrong, then why didn't Jesus say, Thomas, how dare you? You know better than this. How could you ask for such a thing? But instead, Jesus comes to Thomas and he says, Thomas, look. Look at my wounds. Touch them. Put your finger here and put your finger there. Moreover, if what Thomas asked for is wrong, if believing through visual, empirical evidence is wrong, then why did Jesus also show the other disciples the same thing? If you go back to verse 20, And so here, if you have your Bibles open, in the same chapter, if you just go back four verses, in verse 20, Jesus is with the other disciples. And listen to the text. It says, he showed them. He showed them his hands and his side. And so the disciples were glad when they saw him. What does this tell us? It tells us that the other disciples needed the same evidence. They needed to see and to touch in order to believe. And the only difference between the other disciples and Thomas is not that Thomas was necessarily more skeptical or more cynical, but simply that he just wasn't there. 
And so Christianity is not asking for faith without evidence. It's not saying, just believe. Secondly, look at Thomas's response. Thomas touches Jesus. He sees the, the wounds. And in verse 28, he responds by saying, my Lord and my God. Do you know how breathtaking this is? He says, my Lord and my God. Did you know that this is the only place in all of the Gospels when a human being in the story, in time, addresses Jesus as God? This is the only time somebody ascribes divinity to Jesus. And in fact, this is the highest Christological statement among any person in the Gospels. And so for this reason, commentators will tell you that this is the climactic scene in the Gospel of John. The entire book of John has been building, has been leading to this moment, to Thomas's confessions. And in fact, since John is the last of the Gospels, it's the capstone of the Gospels, this is the climactic scene in all of the Gospels. And therefore, it shows us that Thomas is not a weak, bad apostle. He is a great apostle. Because on his lips is the greatest statement of faith among all the disciples. And therefore, this, is not, this story is not some cautionary tale. You know, don't be like Thomas. But this story is here for our edification, for our encouragement. We need to look and study this story. What can we learn from Thomas? And for the purposes of this sermon, what does this tell us about doubt? You see, I think a lot of us, we grew up in church and we were told, never doubt. It's wrong to have doubts. And therefore, If you have substantial doubts, then maybe it means you're not really a Christian. Maybe it means you're not really saved. And if you accept that, then persistent nagging doubts becomes this traumatic experience, right? This shouldn't be happening to me. And when people have doubts, they keep it quiet. It's this thing full of fear and shame, right? People think there must be something defective in me. So that having doubts becomes this terrible secret that must be kept hidden. But I want you to know that if you have doubts, when you have doubts, you're not alone. I want you to know that there are many people in the church that have doubts. I know because I've spoken to so many of you. I want you to know that there are leaders in the church who have doubts. I want you to know that I have doubts. And I want you to know that many of the greatest Christians in the history of the church have struggled with doubts. And finally, I want you to look at Thomas, the great apostle. And he had intense doubts. And I want you to see in the story that his doubts was not an obstacle to his coming to faith. It was the very gateway to his faith. I want you to see that his doubts did not hinder him from coming to know the risen Christ 
Don't you see? They were the very means by which he came to this deep and profound knowing so that he could cry out, my Lord and my God. And in the next point, we're going to talk about how our doubts do that, how our doubts can build up our faith. But for the moment, I just want us to reflect on this passage because the very existence of this passage is amazing. Because here you have one of the most important resurrection stories. This is one of the most central resurrection appearances upon which the validity of Christianity rests. And at the center of the story is a man filled with doubts, is a man filled with questions and uncertainty. And so what does this tell, what does the existence of the story tell us? Do you know what it means? It means that Jesus loves people who have doubts. It means that he bears with our doubts with patience and compassion. He won't condemn us. He won't reject us, but he will supply us with answers. Don't you see? That's how he responded to Thomas's doubts. Now, before we move on to the second point, I need to ask, answer a question, which is, some of you astute readers are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because if you look at the end of the text, the end of the story, right? Doesn't Jesus rebuke Thomas for his lack, for his, um, for his doubts? And it does seem like that, doesn't it? And this is going to be a bit of an involved argument. So I want you to bear with me, okay? So when you look at verse 29, in verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, he says, have have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So it does seem here that Jesus is saying to Thomas, you only believe me because you saw me. But it would have been much better. And you would be more blessed if you could have believed Thomas without seeing Now, I want you to know that that interpretation depends on reading the first part of what Jesus says here as a question, as a rhetorical question. And when it's read as a question, it kind of has this edge to it, right? There's this kind of bite and and criticism of Thomas. The problem with that interpretation is that if you read the original Greek, it is not a question. Because first of all, there is no interrogative word. And I'm really reluctant to do this because I really don't like it when preachers say, if you read the original Greek, because it kind of gives you the sense that if you don't know Greek, you're not really reading the Bible. And so let me assure you, let me give you this confidence that your modern English translations are fantastic. They are superb. The scholarship behind it is world-class. You are not at a significant disadvantage for not knowing Greek. However... However, I do believe this is one of the very, very few times where the ESV translation, which is the translation that we use, where the ESV translation is wrong because it renders it as a question and it is not a question because it, first of all, it lacks an interrogative. What is an interrogative? An an interrogative is a word that indicates, that starts a question, who, what, when, where, why. Instead, there's no interrogative. 
The first word is the Greek word hati, and hati means because. And so if you were to literally translate it word for word, this is how it should be read. Jesus says to Thomas, listen to this. He says, because you have seen me, you believe. That's what the text says. Because you have seen me, you believe. It's a simple statement. It's a flat statement. And in fact, this is how the NIV translates it. Yay, NIV. And this is how most commentaries will tell you is how it should be read. And for me, at least, the feather in the cap is D.A. Carson, who is a world-renowned biblical scholar. He says, absolutely, this is not a question. This is a simple statement. He is not criticizing Thomas. And therefore, what does this mean? What's the implication of this? Listen. Jesus is not saying it is wrong to believe through seeing. He is not saying it is wrong to believe through seeing. In fact, he is saying the very opposite. He is saying it was absolutely necessary for the disciples to see and to touch because the apostles would go on to play this critical role of being eyewitnesses of the resurrection and then Jesus sends them out and they're to go and to proclaim what they have seen to the world. And so if you listen to, for example, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. So this is the opening words of the Apostle John's epistle. Listen to what he's, he writes. He says, That which was from the beginning, listen, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, we proclaim and testify to you. And so what is this saying? It's saying that the disciples had to see and touch the risen Christ. The Great Commission depended on their eyewitness testimony. There will be no church without seeing and touching. But that introduces another problem, which is, if it is good to believe through seeing, then what about the rest of us? What about all the future generations of believers who would not have access to the seeing because Jesus would ascend to heaven in 40 days? So what about the rest of us who can't see, but we only have the testimony of the apostles in Scripture? And what Jesus is saying in this last part here is he's saying, you're not missing out. Your faith is not defective for not seeing. And then he gives us this wonderful assurance. This, he extends this blessing that our faith without seeing is just as valid as the apostles. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8-9. through 9. This is how the apostle Peter opens his epistle. Listen to this. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so what is the first point? The first point is that doubt is not an obstacle to faith. It can be a pathway to an even deeper faith. That leads me to my second point. What is the difference between believing doubt and unbelieving doubt? And here I know it sounds rather strange to talk about 
believing doubt, right? Aren't they a contradiction in terms? But again, I want you to understand that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is unbelief. What is unbelief? Unbelief is the willful rejection of God. Unbelief is a, is a posture of hostility to God. And from that posture, it uses doubt like a weapon. It uses doubt like a knife to jab at God. It's what the serpent said to Eve in the garden. Did God really say? That is unbelieving doubt. It's what the Pharisees and the scribes said to Jesus. Show us a sign. These were not honest questions, but they were a trap. They were trying to test Jesus. And so there is a kind of doubt that asks questions, but it's not really seeking answers. It's not really seeking the truth, but it's actually trying to undermine the truth. It is not an honest inquiry because it's already made up its mind. But on the other hand, there is another kind of doubt. There is a doubt that is truly seeking the truth. And it is asking questions not because it already knows the answers, but because it doesn't know the answers. And therefore, what I'm trying to tell you here is that there are two different kinds of doubts. There is a believing doubt and there is an unbelieving doubt. And therefore, it is not about the doubt itself. It's what you do with your doubts. And this leads us to ask a more fundamental question, which is, where does doubt come from? Where does doubt come from? Does it come from sin? Does it come from human rebellion? And the answer is no. It comes from human finitude. It comes from the, the, the limitedness of human beings who, 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 there's so much that we don't know. And so what is this other doubt there for? What does it mean to doubt while you're believing? What is this believing doubt? And so you could think of it like this. Jesus said, you are to have faith like a little child. Think about children. Little children, they are full of questions. When Judah and Noah were younger, they would always say to me, but why, Daddy? But why? And if you're a parent, you know that the questions never end. And why are they asking? Are they asking questions of you because they're skeptical about you? Because they're trying to undermine you? No. They're asking questions because they actually think you have the answers. And so there is this deep confidence in them that you can provide them satisfying answers. And so a childlike faith is not the absence of questions. It is a multitude of questions. Don't you understand? And so again, it is not the doubt itself. It is what you do with your doubts that counts. Do you use your doubts to challenge God, to put him in the dock, as C.S. Lewis wrote, to put him on trial? Or do you take your doubts to God? Like a little child asking for answers. Perhaps the most famous doubter in the Bible after Thomas is John the Baptist. There's a scene that is recorded in Matthew chapter 11 and in Luke chapter 7 where John the Baptist is in prison. He is languishing in Herod's dungeon. 
And in chains, the years began to roll by. And all hope seems lost. And he begins to doubt. And the doubt, the questions grow and grow. And then finally, he sends a messenger to Jesus. And the messenger says to Jesus, listen to this, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? He's saying to Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Because I don't know anymore. I'm not certain anymore. Think about this. This is John the Baptist, whom Jesus called the greatest prophet who has ever lived, and he was filled with doubts. How does Jesus respond? Does he say, get out of town? How dare you question me? Or does he say, just believe? Don't have any doubts in your mind? No. He responds to John, to the messenger, and listen to this, it's marvelous. He says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. He says, go and tell that to John. And so Jesus here provides answers. He gives evidence upon evidence. He is not asking for blind faith. He gives reasons. He quotes scripture. He says, go and read Isaiah. See if it matches what you are seeing and what you are hearing. I think that sometimes we're afraid of where our doubts will lead us. We're afraid that if we ask hard questions, there won't be good answers. And then we'll lose our faith. And that's a scary thought. But do you think Christianity is so weak and so fragile that it cannot survive your scrutiny? Imagine going to buy a car and you meet the salesman. And he shows you this car. And as he's showing you this car, he keeps saying, don't touch that. Don't look there. That wouldn't be confidence building, would it? But instead, if the salesman has a really solid car on his hands, he would say to you, go ahead, kick the tires, take it out for a test drive. Don't be gentle with it. Really put it through its paces, you know, do some hard corners, you know, really stress test the engine because he knows that rigorous scrutiny will only prove the worthiness of the car. And therefore, listen to me, don't be afraid of your doubts. Don't be afraid of your doubts, but instead let your doubts be a kind of positive energy that drives you to scripture, that drives you to prayer. And I want you to see here that your doubts, they're gifts. Your doubts are gifts because those with the greatest doubts are capable of the greatest faith. So that leads me to my third point. And here we're going to go much more quickly. And I've already talked about this a little bit, but let me give you two more words of guidance about doubt. First of all, first word, process your doubts in community. 
process your doubts in community. Look at Thomas. He's gathered together with the other disciples and they tell him about the resurrection and he has doubts. He has... The text tells us eight days later, he's with them again so that his doubts didn't cause him to reject Christian community. It caused him to cling to it, cling to them all the more because when you have doubts, you need Christian friends to come alongside of you, to hear your doubts, to reason with you, to help you process your doubts so that you shouldn't do it alone. You, you can't do it alone. By the way, this is an argument for coming to church. Because in verse 26, it says eight days later. Now, that's a curious detail, right? What is that in reference to? What happened eight days previously? And the answer, of course, is that the first day was Easter Sunday. It was the day of Jesus' resurrection. And he shows himself to the women followers. And then later on, he shows himself to the male disciples, disciples, but for whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there. And then, eight days later, and you have to understand that in the Hebrew culture, in, in, the, in the culture of the Bible, they count days inclusively. So we're, we're, we're counting the first Sunday, and then we're counting the second Sunday, meaning this was the next Sunday. This was the following Sunday. It was the Lord's Day. And all the disciples, they were gathered together. And don't you see, it was the beginnings of church. They were, they were there to think about the resurrection, discuss the resurrection. What does it mean? And Thomas was there. And so what does this tell us? It tells us that when you have doubts, like Thomas, go to church. Go to church. Listen to the sermon. Sing the songs. Or if you can't sing them, just listen to the songs. And talk with your Christian friends. Because who knows? Maybe one of those Sundays, the risen Lord will give you the answers that you seek. Secondly, so first, process your doubts in community. Secondly, do not expect quick answers. So on the first day, Thomas expresses serious doubts. And then what happens? Nothing happens. Jesus clearly knows Thomas has questions and his doubts, but Jesus doesn't answer them immediately, but he lets Thomas sit with his doubts. And imagine what those eight days were like for him. Eight anxious days, agonizing days. He's confused. He's hearing what the disciples are telling him, and he's trying to piece them together. But, 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 but it doesn't make any sense. How can this be? But he perseveres. He doesn't give up. And he keeps searching. He keeps seeking for the truth. He keeps gathering with the disciples. He's trying to understand. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 says this, listen. You will seek me and find me, listen, when you seek me with all your heart. Don't give up but persevere in your doubts. Let me add one more thing before we get to the final point. I want you to know that to follow Christ does not require that all of your questions are fully answered. 
I want you to know that you can have holes. You can have gaps, sometimes significant gaps in your understanding of the Christian faith. You can have all kinds of questions. You know, how does modern science, how is it compatible with Christianity? You can have doubts about the inerrancy of the Bible. You can have persistent questions about homosexuality, predestination, gender roles. These are all perplexing questions. And listen to me, they are important questions. And we should seek answers to them. But I want you to know they are ultimately peripheral questions. They are peripheral to the central question. And the central question is, who is Jesus? Not just what did he teach, not just what did he do, but who is he? And Thomas, after struggling with his doubts, he said, my Lord and my God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Finally, last point, the ultimate proof. So Thomas says, I need evidence. I need solid, overwhelming, irrefutable evidence. I need proof that I can touch and see. And so Jesus comes to him and he says, do you want proof? Let me give you the ultimate proof. And then he comes to Thomas and he says, look at my wounds. Look at my wounds, Thomas. Touch them. Put put your fingers in them. And so that's the answer. The ultimate proof for Christianity are his wounds. Do you know how amazing that is? What if the ultimate proof for Christianity is that God wrote his name on the far side of the moon? And one day, astronauts discover them and brings back the pictures. Everyone's like, wow, amazing. How do you explain that? Or what if the ultimate proof for Christianity is that every night, Written in the night sky in fire is, are the words, God is real. In every country, it's written in that language, God is real. Everyone will be like, whoa, how do you explain that? Everyone will be convinced. There will be no atheists anymore. Everyone would know God exists. But that wouldn't change you. That wouldn't transform you. Because you can be a theist. You can believe that God exists and still live a reprehensible life and still live a life that is lost and full and without hope. Because ultimately what you need to know is not merely that God exists, but you need to know that he loves you. I want you to know that Christianity tells us that God created this world as a loving father. But humanity turned away from God. We turned our backs to God. All we like sheep have gone astray and each of us have turned to his own way, says the prophet Isaiah. And therefore, all of us, we deserve judgment and death. We deserve to be cast out from his presence into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This is John 3, 16. 
and through his sacrificial death and through his wounds, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you receive this, if you believe this, it will change you. Because now you will know not merely that God exists, but that he loves you, that he sent his son to die for you. Do you understand how loved you are? Do you know how loved you are? You are the apple of his eye, Psalm 17, verse 8. He sings over you like a little baby in his arms, Zephaniah 3.17. You are his most treasured possessions, 1 Peter 2.9. You are his beloved son, Ephesians 1.5. You are his beautiful bride and he is ravished by you, Revelation 21.2. Are you starting to get the picture? And so if you are so loved like that, by your heavenly Father, by the creator of all things, how can you not love him back? How can you not give him your whole life? Because he gave you his whole self to you. Look at his wounds. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you patiently and graciously bear with our doubts. We believe. Help our unbelief. And I'm praying right now, especially for people who are really struggling with Christianity. They're not sure. They have many questions. Would you reveal yourself to them? Would you supply them with answers? Would you show them that Christ is risen and in him we are loved. Would you show them through your word, through the testimony of the apostles, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.